Go ahead and pick your speed up your number one now. Runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome to the Green Dot EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. I am one of your hosts. I'm Chris Henry, the EAA Aviation Museum Programs Coordinator. And joining me from a very safe distance across the table... Tom Sharpentier, Government Relations Director. Now, Tom, uh, I know it's cliched because I say it all the time. My favorite episodes are the ones where we get to have some cool guests on and hear their stories. And today we are fortunate to have a guest. Do you want to let us know who we have? Yes, that's right. Uh, Beth Stanton is the author of the aviation, excuse me, the innovations in aviation column for Sport Aviation Magazine. Um, she's been a pilot for about 10 years now um, and actually spent a lot of that uh, in competition aerobatics and in fact got her uh, writing start, um, at least for EA's related publications, uh, writing a, a column for the uh, International Aerobatics Club's uh, Sport Aerobatics Magazine before moving on to Sport Aviation and her innovations column. So uh, Beth, welcome. I'm thrilled to be here, you guys. So Beth, um, before we get into kind of what we see, where we see aviation going and some of the really cool innovations we see on the horizon, uh, let's talk a little bit about you and your background in aviation. Um, so you've been, you got your private pilot's license in uh, 2011. What, what sparked you to do that? So I'll just say, if you asked me 10 years ago, if I'd be here doing what I'm doing right now, I would have never believed you in a million years. Um, after I got my private pilot license, I was still a little uneasy and afraid of the stall spin scenario. So three weeks after my check ride, I was in an extra 300 practicing um, stalls and spins and I actually loved it. So that immersed me into the world of competition aerobatics, which I did for about eight years. And so what's really funny is, you know, I have a background in English. I, I majored in English in college because it required the least amount of math. <laughs> and so now the fact that I became a pilot, which by the way, was the hardest thing I ever did in my life. And I almost quit halfway through because I didn't think I had the talent. So the fact that I became a pilot, became an aerobatic pilot, and now I'm actually writing about technology in a very um, sort of engineering aerospace realm. It, the irony of that is not lost on me and I think it's hilarious. So I'm just super excited because this aspect of aviation with innovative aircraft design and the technologies that make that happen, it just, it's my favorite part of aviation. So I'm just really excited to be here talking about it with you guys. Now, Beth, I'm doing a little uh, experiment with some of the guests that we've had on and uh, you'll, you'll join that experiment. And it's we all, I always say that there's one airplane, one tail number through your progression of flight training that will just always be like kind of etched into your memory. Is there one tail number that was special for you? Like one of the was the first airplane you soloed or across country or something like that? Well, I would have to say unequivocally um, is the last aircraft I was flying in competition aerobatics. So it's 230 Delta Whiskey. And it is a single seat, high performance mid-wing called the Laser. And it is, um, if, if anyone here has flown a single seat aircraft for the first time, that is a really pivotal moment in a pilot's career because you know obviously nobody can teach you how to fly a single seat airplane you just have to get in and fly it so that was that will always hold a place in my heart for sure that that first flight by yourself is it, it's something and then it's just uh you feel like you're pushing some sort of envelope 
I actually like on my third trip back from the bathroom before actually going, I was telling myself, you know, I don't really have to fly today. I could always do it next week. And, you know, <laughs> I just was like, you know what, you're not going to be more skilled next week than you are now. Just suck it up and do it. And I have to tell you guys, once the engine turned over, I was 100% pure focus, you know, just took off, went out to the practice area, maneuvered came back and landed. It's actually the best landing I ever did in my life. And I still haven't done one that good since. <laughs> I think I was just, and then when I taxied back to the hangar and turn off the engine, I went to um, unlatch the canopy and my hand was shaking so hard. I could barely unlatch the canopy, but, it, but like the, every moment that I was flying, I was just purely focused. So um, that was a really great accomplishment, I think. Yeah, definitely. Uh I don't think um, most of us have not yet had the privilege of, of getting to solo an airplane that's uh, single seat where basically you just have to talk through the whole thing before you actually fly it. So that's uh, that's really special. Um, before we get um, into the innovation side of things, I just wanted to, to briefly stay on aerobatics for just another second. Um, we've had a couple of aerobatic pilots on the show before. I just wanted to hear from you. Uh, what did you find to be maybe the most challenging um, part of aerobatics and maybe also the most rewarding? Hmm. Well, I would have to say one of the most challenging parts, which I also found the most fun was, you know, when you move up in the categories in the intermediate category, you start to fly an unknown. So, you know, everybody flies a known, which is each year is, you know, like figure skating at the compulsory. Um, then there's a freestyle that you make up you know, to sort of maximize your skills. And then when you reach the higher categories, there's an unknown. So basically the night before they hand you um, a sequence, you have to go out and fly the next day, never actually having flown it. So you basically have to fly it in your mind and sort of walk in a, a square and visualize the maneuvers and the power and the energy and the altitude and the speed that you need for the maneuvers. So that was probably one of the most challenging yeah, like I said, one of the most fun parts of, of competition. Um, and I would have to say the most rewarding part of it is really the, the camaraderie and the people. I mean, it's just like everybody is just like just so excited and so thrilled. And it's just like this really singular thing we're all doing. And so it, it was it's just really special to have that community. I, uh, you know, I watch videos of some of the aerobatics, especially the stuff that's taken with GoPros inside and you know, I just can't help but think like, man, I would have a lot of throw up on that canopy. <laughs> I don't <laughs> is the is the sensation when you're doing this like a is it like a roller coaster for those who've never flown, you know, aerobatics like that? What what is it like in there? I would say that's a perfect description. It's it's a three-dimensional roller coaster in the sky that you're driving. That is an exact description. Now, luckily, I never had an issue from day 1 ever and through my whole kind of competition career of getting airsick. Um, you do kind of, if you fly for more than like, you know, 20, 30 minutes in a practice, you can get kind of stupid, I call it. You get woogly. <laughs> you get like, whoa. Um, but I was very fortunate. That's not the case with everybody. Some people have a really hard time when they first start out um, with 
feeling nauseous. I don't think anybody like really, really throws up. I mean, obviously people going along for an aerobatic joyride, that can happen. So you have to be prepared for that. But you know, it's like working out, you just kind of work your way up. Do you know what I mean? And, and the more you do it, the more you build up your tolerance for it. Like I haven't flown aerobatics in a while. So if I got in a plane right now and flew it, it, it would probably affect me way more than when I was doing it more regularly, but it's, it's something that you can certainly overcome if, if you're really dedicated. Yeah. I, I, uh, I hate roller coasters. I hate any time that I'm not in control, but I, I do feel like, uh, um, and I, and I also feel that way, like when I'm in the back seat and somebody else is flying, but, uh, but definitely when you're in control, it does, it does seem a little bit more, uh, uh, easy on the stomach, I guess. But, um, well, great. Well, let's uh, let's let's get into why we're here today. Um, you've been writing our uh, our innovations column in Sport Aviation for five years now, um, and we just wanted to talk about um, during that time what you've seen and what's gotten you excited and uh, where you see aviation going in uh, you know say the next few decades. Um, do you want to um, kind of pick a topic and um, and start from there? Yeah, well, you know, there's a handful of topics that I think are really relevant right now and are really developing. Um, and very exciting. And when you say the next few decades, I'm going to say the next few years. I mean, obviously, some stuff is a little bit farther out. Um, but one of the first things I want to talk about is, is electric aviation. And electric propulsion just shatters the notion of the sort of tube and wing design of aircraft that we've had, you know, for over 100 years. Um, using small lightweight electric motors, you can use something called distributed electric propulsion. So you can put the motors at different parts of the airframe. So it's not like how we have it today where you have single engine in front or two engines in front or a jet engine in back. You can do all kinds of amazing um, configurations of airframe and engine creating really novel designs, which I'm sure um, many of our listeners who kind of you know, look at, it's even in the mainstream news, you see um, all of the different electric vertical takeoff and landing vehicles with multi-rotors. Um, so it's really exciting. And, you know, with electric propulsion, it's not just about all of these electric vertical takeoff and landings or EV tall vehicles. Right now, there's even, um, I believe it's Ampere, they're taking a Cessna 337 and they are, you know, retrofitting it with electric motors, um, hybrid electric motors. So, you know, I think there's going to be this incremental stepwise um, approach to integrating electric aircraft. Um, right now, we have the battery technology. That's another thing that always gets brought up is, oh, we don't have, you know, the battery technology. They're too heavy. We can't go long distances with these electric vehicles. And that is correct. However, there are a lot of journeys in aircraft that are short haul and we actually have the technology battery alone technology today for a lot of these short haul journeys so um, hybrid electric even expands that envelope for example uh, vertigo arrow who i've written several innovation columns about they've actually paired with continental so you know we have this legacy propulsion engine company that is paired up with this very innovative electric company to do a hybrid electric powertrain um, to kind of sort of bridge that gap between um, 
all electric because really the batteries right now they are they are limited but hybrid electric i think is really going to um push that envelope a little bit farther yeah, that's definitely a very interesting um, uh, paradigm shift in the way that we can actually power aircraft, you know, um, re- whereas, you know, before we have an engine directly driving a propeller um, with smaller electric motors, you can put an engine pretty much anywhere. And that, that really does change things in terms of, fl- you know, how you control the aircraft and how the aircraft flies and um, and things like that. That's very very interesting, and and you know, hybrid uh, propulsion is is also a way that uh, that we can extend the range of those distributed electrical systems, and and uh, really, uh, really open up some some pretty cool possibilities. So, Beth, you actually flew an electric aircraft, the uh, the Pipistrel Alpha Electro, Electro excuse me, uh, trainer. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. That was that was a really exciting opportunity. I had met. Um, Joseph Oldham, he is the director of the Sustainable Aviation Project based down in Fresno, California. And if believe it or not, you guys, this, this um, project has the largest concentration of electric aircraft in the Western Hemisphere. So they have four Pipistrel Alpha Electro trainers. Um, they had a $1 million grant and they set up a charging infrastructure between several local regional airports. The Alpha Electra was never actually meant to be, um, it was just meant to be a traffic pattern trainer. Um, They're built in uh, Europe. But Joseph had this vision of putting chargers at different airports, which could serve as a way to lower the cost of flight training so students could fly from you know, one airport to the other. So um, I've been pro- following his project since um, 2016, actually. And um, he's been going through this process of doing um, validation testing for FAA to, to get, because as you know right now, um, elect aircraft are not eligible for flight training purposes. They are actually in Europe and Australia currently um, because of the language of reciprocating engine. Obviously, an electric motor is not a reciprocating engine. So they were doing 200 hours of validation testing for the FAA, and they did submit a petition um, in August of 2019 after successful flight training program. So I actually went down to Fresno and flew um, first they have they have a alpha trainer a regular rotax you know gas version the alpha electro is the exact same airframe but with uh, an electric motor so i jumped in the the gas powered alpha trainer and i'd never flown a light sport aircraft before so they are a little um, more nimble shall i say on the controls and then i jumped in and flew the the electric aircraft and i have to tell you guys it was so funny because you turn it on when you it's quiet it is like literally silent so that's a very big difference so it's there's no you don't have the vibration and you don't have the noise that you expect and when you turn when you put the throttle forward it makes the sound it goes like like a spaceship goes like when you come when you taxi forward so I was really enjoying that I was pretending I was in the enterprise um taxiing around the airport and so and then when you just put the throttle in it's instant power you know like usually when you like put in the throttle there's like this sort of spool up and this roll up and then you kind of and then you take off this was like instant you just like boom 
and you just jumped into the air. So it was super thrilling. It was very strange to not look at like the, um, you know, that the fuel and the oil and, and, is, and instead you're looking at like the state of charge. You know, when you think about it, it's the energy that powers the airplane, but it's just, it was really surreal to just look at, you know, the kilowatts and, you know, the battery temperatures. And um, so it was very serene and, and just smooth because it's smoother than a reciprocating engine because you don't have the different pistons firing. Um, you have to keep it very, very coordinated because, you know, any uncoordinated flight is going to scrub off some energy and you'd have to land faster. Um, and also the, the wings on the Alpha Electra are super long. You know, it's, it's almost not, a, it's not as long as a glider, of course, but it's, it feels like a glider almost when you're coming into land because it just has these really big, long floaty wings. And so it was really exciting. And um, I really am looking forward to the opportunity to be able to fly uh, an electric aircraft. Was it uh, when you're actually up at power, like at altitude, uh, you know, pattern altitude, is it is it really quiet? Like you hear more of like the wind, almost like a glider or, or what are you hearing? Well, it is there is more, you know, when you're in a glider, all you hear is like the creaks and the wind. Right. You, you, you don't hear the, obviously there's, there's no engine. So you do hear it's, it's the propeller is what you hear, actually. You know, obviously the the motor is 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 silent, but there is some sound fr from the propeller. Um, but you know, as you power back to come into land, like like any airplane, that that noise level reduces. But when the first time um, when the ribbon cutting ceremony for these aircraft were in 2018, and I was standing on the ramp, and Joseph got into the aircraft and started it up and taxied it away towards the runway, and I literally couldn't hear a thing. Really? It was, you know, like a Prius sneaks up on you. It, it was kind of like that. You're like, whoa, that plane is, is moving and I, <laughs> I don't hear anything. So it's it's pretty amazing. Does the, uh, I, I'm just thinking um, from experience with uh, with electric model aircraft, does the prop actually stop when you're at idle? When you turn everything on, you know, you, you flick on the power, you flick on all, all the instruments. It's not until you push the throttle forward, the prop begins to spin. Okay. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. Um, okay, let's um, let's move on to. Um, uh, I know we kind of put together a top five list of, uh, of of the innovations that you see out there. What's uh, what's next on your list? So, and this is a nice sort of segue uh, from electric aircraft into advanced aerial mobility. This is a relatively new term. Previously, we were calling it urban air mobility or UAM. That term may be familiar to a lot of our listeners here. Um, but really, there's a lot more applications to advanced aerial mobility besides the urban um, setting. There's rural settings. There's you know agricultural settings. So the AAM, advanced aerial mobility, is a lot more inclusive of this sort of future flight that's coming. And I think this is like really a very, very super exciting and dynamic um, topic right now in innovation. And, you know, it's, people talk a lot about, you know, sky ta air taxis and flying cars and all that kind of stuff in commercial applications of this technology, but it, there's also a recreational uh, aspect, an ultralight aspect, um, black fly, 
um, openers, Blackfly, a personal aerial vehicle. They were at AirVenture 18, also AirVenture 19. Um, I had the great opportunity to tour their facility in Silicon Valley. Marcus Lang, um, the owner and founder of Blackfly, took me around. That was that was a, quite a thrill. So there's lots of different applications of this type of technology. And I will say, you know, for about five years, I've been going to conferences and sitting around in these symposiums talking about, um, you know, the different possibilities of this technology. And I have to say, you know, we have this 2020 pandemic and thing going, everything going on. And it's like, okay, is this going to slow things down and what's happening? I'm seeing this acceleration actually um, in the pace of, of the space. Now, Prior to 2020 or around 2020, before everything happened, there were there were an estimated 200 different companies sort of in this space, and a lot of them were working in stealth, you know, working on different airframe configurations, working on different um, applications of this technology. And I really do think that out of all of those 200, even if we didn't have a pandemic happen, I mean, there were going to be a lot that kind of didn't come to light in, at the end of the day. But I don't know, just um, Joby Aviation, um, they are actually, they have um, Toyota, Hyundai, um, auto manufacturers are kind of getting on board and looking at the future of this uh, transportation technology. What was that? I think Joby Aviation is, um, there's a merger deal right now going on that they might actually be worth $5.7 billion if, if um, this, merger actually goes through. Um, they're estimated to have um, FAA certification by 2023. Um, there's another company here in California called Archer and United Airlines just purchased 200 of these aircraft, a $1 billion deal. And um, Archer is actually the first of these companies that have, that have gone public with a listing of $3.8 billion. So it, it's happening and it's happening right now. Um, also Terrafugia, they've been working on a, they call it a rotable aircraft, you know, so literally a flying car where it sort of drives on roads and flies. Um, they were just um, issued um, light sport, they were just L, um, light sport LSA by the FAA a couple weeks ago. So like this is really happening right now, you guys. So it's it's really exciting to, to see the possibilities. And there are huge challenges um, integrating this technology into our current national airspace. And I know, Tom, you know, we wanted to absolutely touch on this for our members um, because, you know, right now we have unmanned traffic management, which is for, for drones and unmanned, you know, small unmanned aerial vehicles, which is 400 feet and below. So this is going to be another layer of airspace integration, which is, you know, 500 feet and above um, to kind of work that all in with existing um, air traffic. And it's, Tom, I think, you know, there's a couple of points that you wanted to make that was really important. Um, NASA is working with, um, they they just started just last year, December 2020, of their Advanced Aerial Mobility National Campaign. And this is a decade-long um, incremental testing program of how do we get all of these vehicles into the national airspace. And they're working on it in a very 
logical stepwise approach and it's all about safety and it's all about integrating this with current technology because really the the liberties and freedoms of general aviation pilots to go out and fly their airplanes we that this this space is not going to impinge on that it's not like we're going to take away um where you can fly it's going to be how do we integrate this technology, this new technology that, by the way, is still being developed. It is not all figured out yet. How are we going to integrate that so that um, everyone can play in the sandbox together? Yeah, it definitely is a technology, or excuse me, a, a challenge that that, um, that we need to tackle with technology. Because um, it's not, it, it, most of it does have to do with, uh, with obviously, general aviation aircraft are generally higher than a lot of um, of AAM and UAS uh, operations, but um, you know we also can't can't forget about um, our ultralight members, you know, who are not restricted by altitude. You know, plenty of people are out flying powered parachutes at uh, you know below 500 feet, um, usually not anywhere um, near a built-up area, but but certainly you know um, people we need to be uh, we, we need to make sure that. We keep away, um, or we keep we keep the the uh, the UAS away from the uh, uh, from those operators. So um, yeah, I, I I remain hopeful that there is technology out there that can can assure avoidance with um, not just aircraft that are equipped with uh, with things like ADSB and other other stuff like that, but 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 truly anybody uh, who's up there. Uh, whether they're equipped or not, whether they're participating or not, and whatever altitude they're at, um, it's 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 really important. Well, and you know, one thing that has always impressed me, you know, when I go to these conferences, is is the the diversity of people who are working on this problem. I mean, we have NASA, the FAA, we have industry, you know, Bell, Boeing, um, you have local. Um, government and regional government, you know, because obviously this has to integrate into the community. You have air traffic control people. Um, so there's a lot of people who, you know, all the players that have stakes in this are really, there's some really, really smart people who, who are working on integrating this technology. And um, I, I frankly think that, think it's really exciting. And um, we're, we're pretty smart as people. And I really think we're going to get this figured out, you know, and again, it's a stepwise approach. It's not like, you know, tomorrow, all of a sudden, there's going to be all of these, you know, air taxis jumping off of buildings running around. It, it's going to be a very um, sort of slow rolled out approach. Um, but it, but it's really exciting. Yeah, definitely. I, we, we had a briefing um, a little while ago with uh, with one large manufacturer who uh, was showing us that they, they did have collision avoidance technology that um, could basically see, could, you know, could see the the, um, the the area in front of the device and um, and could, you know, for example, spot a hang glider and uh, and make sure that uh, that stays out of the way. But, yeah, that's always been our guiding principles, you know, certainly from the advocacy perspective is. Um, you know, we can still access, we have to, in the future, we, we expect to be able to access all the same airspace we currently can today, that there be no new equipment mandates for us. Um, and then also that, uh, um, uh, that the manned aircraft, the human carrying aircraft uh, would always have the right of way because, you know, it's, it's, uh, kind of our skin in the game up there. Uh, that's, uh, that's the yeah. most important. Um, and when I say are. I'm oh, sorry. I was just going to say when I when when we say R too. I mean, you know, EAA does represent um, anything that flies, and and uh, that that does absolutely include um, you know these these emerging future technologies. 
And thank you, Tom, because that's a really excellent point to make. You know, obviously, you know, we all just got through having to put ESB in our aircraft and, you know, there's a significant amount of expense and retrofitting and all that. And, and the last thing anybody wants to do is have more of that type of thing to, to sort of accommodate all of this advanced aerial mobility coming online. But um, th that industry is really working with really some sophisticated sense and avoid technology. You know, they're camera based using shortwave infrared systems and laser um, radar and, you know, passive um, scene avoid detection systems. So, you know, like I said, there's some really, really smart people working on this and is everything dialed in yet? No, but, but it's, it's, getting, it's getting to be there. It's on the way. Absolutely. So that is really cool. It's it's cool to hear what's coming down the road. You know, we actually have uh, one of the prototype black flies uh, uh, in the museum. It's actually on display. I, I can almost hit it with a rock from my office. So, um, and you always get people just kind of shocked at what it is because it looks so drastically different than anything else in our museum. Um, so yeah, it, it, it it's cool to see younger people getting excited by this as well. Um, so I, again, I know we have a, a finite amount of time. What is next on the Beth hit list? <laughs> well, one thing I wanted to talk about was um, another really exciting component of innovation right now is actually experimental avionics. I mean, having all of these um, sort of commercial off the shelf software products um, and open source software is it's really driving this explosion. So sort of experimental aviation is not just, you know, making your RV, it's actually making um, an EFIS, you know, making an electronic flight instrument system for your RV, like using this, this software. I mean, a Raspberry Pi is this credit card sized high powered computer and it's and it's inexpensive so it's really driving a lot of super cool things um in the electronics realm in at airventure 2018 there was an avionics roundtable with um represented a, a lot of the experimental experimental um, companies that are in the avionics space and um they talked about a lot of really interesting concepts coming down the pike with this you know it's all about adding safety and and adding capability to experimental aircraft um one of them flight view it's it's a it's an ipad ethos it's like literally your glass cockpit or ipads that you put in your in your airplane um there's a gentleman named John Marzulli who made a head-up display um, using like an automotive projector and um, it, it cost $300 to make this head-up display. And um, also in 2017, the winner of the Founders Innovation Prize, um, the EAA um, sponsor, you know, founded, um, they had a, a little head-up display that you, you clipped on, on your sunglasses that showed angle of attack in airspeed. So there's really this really interesting um, electronic space with all these capabilities that weren't possible even just a couple of years ago. Oh, yeah, it's incredible. I mean, you know, just as far as the, uh, yeah, the EFA systems, you know, from the mainstream manufacturers like Dynon and Garmin are fantastic. Um, and the lack of regulation in the, uh, in the experimental space just allows that innovation to, to move at such a breakneck pace. And then, yeah, you know, as far as technology that everybody can access, uh, you know, I just remember just a few years ago when we started using, um, you know, homebrew Raspberry Pi based uh, ADSB in systems that anybody could use. And it, it, 
you know, it dropped the pro- the commercially available stuff at that time was many times more expensive than um, than it, than you know what we were able to do with just a couple hundred bucks worth of uh, computer parts. It it really has made this this um, kind of democratize this this uh, the, this uh, technology space. It's been very exciting. Yeah, absolutely, and and just it's more of it's going to be coming all the time. I mean, if you, you know, head up displays, for example, they're, they're usually used just by the military because they're like insanely expensive. So the fact that you can just take this technology and, and bring it down to the level of, of external aviation is really exciting. Yeah. And, and really the challenge for us has been um, over the last couple of years. Okay. So how do we take this, this amazing technology? And now as it matures, you know, as it proves that it's safe in the experimental realm, how we, how do we bring it up? To, um, to type certificated aviation. And that's uh, some stuff that we've been working on here at EAA. Um, so one of the aircraft I want to talk to you about is you had an experience to actually go out uh, to Mojave and spend some time out there. And you got to see probably one of the, the coolest aircraft ever and, and stand on it. And I want to make sure we have time for you to talk about that. Are you talking about Strato Launch by any chance? That would be it. <laughs> Yeah, so so for people who might need a refresher, you know, Strata Launch Project was actually started in 2011 uh, by Paul Allen, Microsoft co-founder, and Bert Rutan. And it was originally designed as a reusable air launch platform to carry satellites and to rocket them into orbit, into low Earth orbit. Um, so the it's the largest aircraft in the world that's ever been built. It... Um, it has the 385 foot wingspan, which like when you, when you look at it on the runway, which I saw it, I saw it take off for the first time. It was super thrilling. Like literally the wings extend like almost a hundred feet on, on either side of the runway. <laughs> it's just Jeez. the craziest thing. Um, it has a 550,000 pound payload and a gross weight of 1.2 million pounds. I mean, it really like, breaks your brain it's sort of like i would say it's like saying the grand canyon's like a really big hole in the ground like to just describe these letters and or numbers describing stratolaunch it does not do it any justice um it has the most thrust of any aircraft that has ever flown it has 340,000 pounds of thrust with a six pratt and winnie engines so um but so you have this huge twin fuselage aircraft, but it can take off on a 12,000 foot long runway. It has a radius, a flight radius of a thousand nautical miles. So really, instead of just like launching a rocket up one at a time and waiting for per, you know perfect weather to take off, this was really to look at to just sort of like make a reusable um, aircraft that can make access to space um, easier and more affordable in air quotes. Um, so back in 2017 i had the amazing great fortune to tour scaled composites um, because ea wanted me to write an article about scaled composites so um jack um and jack pelton and sean elliott and rick larson and jim busha and myself all met in mojave and we all got a willy wonka tour of the chocolate factory which was amazing and um part of the tour was they brought us over to the strata launch hangar and we climbed up on the top of the wing i'm getting chills as i'm telling you guys this and as everybody's working on it it was just amazing and they told us that that aircraft is so big that is the only place where you can see the entire airplane within your eyeballs 
while it's on the ground is standing on top of the wing because any other place on the ground looking at it you can't see the whole airplane it's it's just a, a massive massive aircraft and so in 2019 the mojave experimental fly-in which is like this little teeny tiny oshkosh on steroids for um the mojave community um that, that was the morning that strata launch made its first flight and it was um it was a secret, but it wasn't a very well-kept secret. It's hard to keep secrets in Mojave because they didn't want a lot of, um, they didn't want a lot of, you know, eyes on it. You know what I mean? They're trying to kind of do it a little stealth. But I had the great fortune to be at the, the departure end of runway 30 and it f flew up and over my head as I watched it take off. And I don't think I've, I've, I've obviously, I've never seen, <laughs> I've never seen anything like that in the world. Um, it, it it was going it looked like it was going so slow that it wasn't moving in space um it, it had it was going 175 miles an hour doing laps around mojave for its first test flight um so it just was at 15,000 feet and the most crazy thing is it looked you know like what how big a cessna looks when it's like in the pattern like visually like you you, you look up at a plane you're like okay that's about a thousand feet off the ground it's coming in that's how big it looked, how strata launch looked like that, but it was at 15,000 feet. Like that's how <laughs> it was. No, seriously, they had the similar size. So um, it was just, they, they came in and they did a sort of a, a, a low pass, you know, just first approach, you know, that it was all, you know, choreographed and they kind of came in and then they went around and then they came in and landed. And um, it, it was just, it was just a thrill to see. And I was super excited that um, I was recording it. And as soon as it happened, I was able to um, put it on uh, EAA's um, Facebook page so everybody could um, could sort of share it. Because like I said, it was kind of on the down low, but um, I was able to share that. And um, it was so funny when it was coming in for its landing, I, I, had, I had it going on my iPhone. And um, I'm like, oh, this is going to be really boring, just like everyone watching the plane come in, because, you know, it's kind of coming in slow. So I just randomly started babbling about strata launch. And um, that video has has over like, you know, it has like a quarter to half. It has like a over a quarter million views right now. So I really kind of wish I thought out what I was going to say more. <laughs> <laughs> But you know, you know, it's all good. So, um, so what's really kind of interesting, you guys, if, if you will recall, Paul Allen died in October of 2018. So he never got a chance to see this fly, which kind of breaks my heart a little bit. Yeah. Um, and they didn't, they didn't know what was going to happen, you know, after he died. Like, what is the future of this project? And so, you know, after it made its first flight, a lot of people were saying, calling it the composite goose like it's never gonna fly again and i was like no and but but here's what happened um they actually so if, as you guys know um access into you know launching satellites into space has sort of become a little bit more mainstream other companies have kind of stepped up into that space while strata launch was you know being developed so what they've done is um another company has purchased strata launch and they have pivoted to hypersonic flight testing so there so it's not for naught so the plane is still going to be used but they've just pivoted to another kind of flight testing which which i'm so thrilled about so um what i love about strata launch is it's just sort of like this quintessential grassroots scrappy you know rutan doing crazy stuff out in mojave and it just 
goes in this direction and then it goes in another direction. And it's, I think it just, the Stratolodge for me kind of epitomizes um, sort of that sort of experimental, um, we can do anything spirit. It has to be a, a little bit of like what it was like to see like, like back in the fifties, watching one of those B-36s take off or something like that, you know, just uh, things of the size of a city block, <laughs> you know, flying around. You know, and you know that's a really great description because I I, I wrote a, a blog post um, to the EAA Inspire blog about this experience, and and I believe what I said is if you can imagine a skyscraper like on its side sliding down a runway and then lifting <laughs> up into the air, like literally that is what it looked like. Um, it, it was just astounding, and I'm just so happy that it's going to keep flying, and um, I'm, they won't give me when I, I did a recent article on them, um, it was about March last year, I think. Um, they, they're, they're, they're a little cagey as to when everything's going to be actual, you know, flying again, but it's, it's pretty in the relatively near future. That's cool. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it does seem like, uh, the aircraft has plenty of applications. It's a highly unique airplane. Yeah. Absolutely. Any time spent out at Mojave, it's kind of like being out at Edwards back in the uh, highlight of the test flying the Air Force was doing. Just a lot of history, a lot of cool stuff happening out there. You can almost feel it in the air when you're out there. Yeah, it's a special place for sure. Absolutely. Well, Beth, we're we're running against the clock here, as we can see. I think we're going to have to have you back down the road for another episode just to, just to keep talking about uh, some of the cool innovations that are out there and what's going on with the uh, different aircraft that you don't always hear much about or, or, or as much about as we could. So I just want to say thank you for coming on and being a guest, let us, letting us bend your ear for a bit today. And um, thank you guys to, and gals out there who listen to the Green Dot. Without you, it would just be me and Tom talking to Christina. So uh, really enjoy uh, having you guys out here. Please continue to leave comments and feedback. Uh, it really helps uh, – um, you know, sort of show who we're hitting and, and, and where your interest lies. And if you're, there's a suggestion you have of someone you'd like to hear on the green dot, let us know. And we'll, uh, we'll try and see if we can find them for you. So again, just want to say uh, thank you for listening and we'll catch you next time when you're cleared to land on the green dot. Mm -hmm.